Welcome to the Art of War Gaming on the Ear Verm Network. Uh, we are excited to be talking to you here. It's been a week or maybe two for you guys, but we are uh, eager to get back on the horse, uh, get it back into production, and be talking to you about Machiavelli. Yeah, it's really exciting to have a new book. It is. I mean, I, I love Sun Tzu's book, but like just the, the different perspective and the different take that he has on everything is... It's interesting, and I and I really think it's worth studying. So I'm glad you guys have decided to join us for this uh, this second part of our show. Um, but before we get too much further into this, I want to give a big shout out to Earverm for being our new server and, uh, and working with us to get out onto the earwaves. Nerddom is on the rise over here, and uh, it feels good. Yeah, with nerdy stuff and a horror movie podcast, and it just kind of follows the theme really well. For sure. So uh, we're going to feel right at home there, and uh, we've already spoken with Tyler, and I like him uh, just fine, so I think we're going to have ourselves a good old time. Uh, But for the next seven episodes, we're going to be speaking about a very interesting book, this uh, Machiavelli's Art of War. And we spoke about it a little bit this last time, or during that transition episode, when we spoke about the differences between Sun Tzu's world and Machiavelli's world, and who they were respectively writing for. Um, but it's important to note, I think, that Machiavelli considered the art of war his most important work. It and was the only work of his that we know about, like, that we still remember today, mm-hmm. that came out during his lifetime. Right, right. It was, it was very famous, and it was very famous during his lifetime, too. Not only did he consider it his most important piece of work, but everybody else basically considered it his best work. So it, it became the book on linear tactics at the time. Do you remember when we were talking about how uh, the, the Eastern uh, military science relies more on subterfuge and maneuver, and the Western has a lot, a lot of the times relied on like this brunt force linear tactics? Machiavelli was part of the refinement of those tactics, which, of course, he learned from studying the Romans. It was just grind fighting. Here's a line, here's a line, they hit each other, there's a smack in the middle. Uh, Yeah, those those scenes in the movies where you've got the two, uh, like, walls of shieldmen who have just come together and they're just, like, pushing for a bit. Yeah, that's, like, hours. bothers me in the movies that, like, they get almost all the way there and then they just break and charge at each other. Yeah, bad, bad And every time they do that, they drop their shields. Well, you just defeated the point of why you had that. Yeah. Well, it's movies, though. I know, and it looks exciting. Dramatic, you know. But yeah. it, it's kind of like learning how to arch ever since then. I've been like, no, that's not how you do it. <laughs> it's not the way. You're going to break your nose. Or take a, a ear off or something. Ooh, yeah. I've, seen, I've seen some strange archery stances. Um, but yeah, he considered this his best work. Everybody considered his best work. And it became the work on linear tactics. So I'm, I'm excited to be studying this as a Stygian. Because we are typically flankers... And uh, we have, we have the, the crazy mountain man style. You and called I, us cavalry recently, and that made me really yeah, happy. Yeah, yeah. We're, we're going to get to a part here where I, where I think it's, it's a good uh, illusion. Uh, not illusion, illusion. If you're reading along with us, do not feel bad if you have a harder time reading this one than Art of War. Yes. This is 16th century Italian. I had a heck of a time with this chapter getting through. And I was getting better towards the end, but it was... It, it's just a rewiring of your brain that you don't get much. The closest we have is like Shakespeare, right? 
which is in its natural language anyway, so we don't have the translation difficulties. And, and a lot of people even don't really get Shakespeare. I get it, it's just a way of writing and a way of thinking that isn't very much done anymore, and it's, it's not to anybody's discredit. Like, if you're one of those folks who's listening along to the podcast and perhaps reading along in the book with us, and you had a real tough time with this chapter, so did I. I, I've been reading these books since I was knee high right to a grasshopper, and they're still thick for me because nobody talks like this anymore. Yeah. Um, so it, it, it's it's not something to be ashamed of, and that's part of the reason that we're here. That's part of the reason this podcast exists is so that we can kind of be a, a reader's companion, if you will, as you're going through and you're like, I don't know if I quite caught that concept. Well, maybe coming on here and listening to us talk about it might spark something in your mind that, that brings about the understanding that the author wished to convey. Mm-hmm. That's, that's, the whole. That, that's pretty much just what I wanted. To, that disclaimer before we got too far. A in. good disclaimer. A good disclaimer. But now, now, without further ado, uh, the spotlight segment on Battle for the Ring, which literally just got done today. Most people are headed home uh, as we're recording this podcast. So I am going to the airport to pick someone up from there as soon as we finish here. Like, let's, yeah. This is how fresh it is. <laughs> So, Battle for the Ring just happened. We've got reports pouring in from uh, a silver of, of uh, excellent sources who we are very, very happy to, to have because neither of us were able to make the event. It's one of our favorites, but we just weren't it's able so to this away. year. And it's it's money. It's the money. But uh, we had some announcements from there that we wanted to read. But by no means are these complete. If we missed the tournament that you won or if we failed to mention the award that you achieved, it was not an intentional slight, please let us know, and we're going to try to uh, get some more of this information out next week as well, as more information actually comes in. But first, uh, Thumbs uh, is going to talk about the awards that were issued. Uh, so, first things first, a Battle for the Ring does an auction every year. I'm pretty sure it's to raise money for next year's event. It's, it's like a Goblin uh, Pub Night type thing. Oh, yeah. is that? Okay, yep. yeah. And there were some crazy money spent this year. Yeah. Uh, Pip who is a... She's a kobold, right? Yes. A, a monster from Cal, Northern California, somewhere in NorCal. I'm sorry, Pip, I don't know your specific realm. <laughs> California confuses me. We just kind of motioned to the south. When we say Stygia, we mean the whole state, so the fact that yeah, you guys have uh, so much... It's NorCal, yeah. NorCal, yeah. Pip raised over a thousand dollars by herself by her so what she was auctioning so the way these auctions work we used to call them slave auctions but that's not very cool to say so that we just call them auctions at this point and i know at chaos wars it used to be you'd go up there and and you'd you know do a little dance or based on your your outfit or what you were doing and people would pay a certain amount to quote unquote own you for the night it's Mm -hmm. not actual slavery um and you do silly things like a lot of people would end up washing dishes or Serge Conta had somebody dig a hole with a spoon and yeah. then fill it back in one time. Um, I got to sing one time I was in camp and I'd come in like expecting because this is a volunteer thing. You go in there and you're like, hey, I'm volunteering for this. So we can raise money for the pub so that everybody can enjoy. So it's, it's something you go into gladly. And so I was like, hey, you know, what do you, what do you want me to do? Do you need me to do some dishes? Do you need me to you know, what, what, what's the task? And they were like, well, we know you're a singer. So why don't you just sing a few songs for us? You're like, I thought you'd never ask. Yeah, well, yeah, I, I certainly wasn't shy about it. Um, and so it, there's a lot of, it depends. It depends on who, quote unquote, buys you. But again, it's a voluntary thing that you're, that you're doing mm, to raise but, money for the event. But what Pip did was <clears throat> they have a insane garb queue because they are one of the best garbers in the sport. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you got bumped to the top of the queue. 
and she had two of these. And got a discount or a, or a credit or something like that, I too, I think right? so. I'm not quite sure how that one worked. Uh, let us know, Pip. And she did two of these, and each one raised over $600. So she did over 1000 combined. Right. Over 600 each. Uh, the other high high price one that I heard of, and there might be others, again, we're still learning this, is my own squire, Squire Yui. They do this really cool bone art. They'll take, like, skulls that they cleaned and paint them and put modeling clay on them and stuff. They, they're they creepy. They're awesome. They're littering my house. <laughs> um, everywhere I turn, there's a glowing skull. It's great. The juju. <laughs> um... I don't know what the final price was, but I do know that they uh, their skull sold for over $250. Over $250. That is a lot of money. And that is a lot of money that is going towards a good time for everybody. So thank you to Pip and to Yui. And to everyone else. And to everybody else who helped contribute but to, to, to this activity because it leads to everybody having a good time, mm-hmm. which is always cool. And then a couple people got knighted or mastered or just elevated in the peerage. Uh, first one is Sir Sita mm-hmm. was knighted. Yep. I do not know who she, you said she? Yep, I, I, I don't believe that I've met Sita either, but I heard she gave a very good showing at, at good. Battle for the Ring. Good for you, Sita. Uh, would love to meet you someday, but, you know, the United States is big. Yeah. Uh, Dame Black Rabbit became, well, I guess Dame. I've known Black Rabbit for several years. She is an amazing member of the community. I honestly, uh, she's one of those people that when you hear that she finally got her title, you're not surprised. Yeah, the the theme that I got from people around is like, it's about time. (laughs) It's about time. Um, I have not met Black Rabbit. I know of Black Rabbit still. Like, that's how entrenched she's become. For sure. So that's real awesome. Yeah, she's an amazing member of the community. Congratulations to both of you. Uh, I'm sure you're going to serve the office well. Uh, And then last one that we have so far is Sven the Pirate became Master Artificer. Master Artificer, yeah. Which there's still not many Master Artificers and not many who have worked up from worked up the ranks that weren't like grandfathered in. Yeah, you have to have some pretty exquisite craftsmanship to be considered for this particular role and, and it's really is quite an honor to, to I uh, I remember that. when Anish got elevated. Yeah. She's like I made the fabric for this or something mm-hmm. like that. Or Her I piece the, was gorgeous oh, too. I got so to good. see it that year. It was amazing. Uh Sven I always stop by and see Sven whenever I can at Chaos Wars. Mm -hmm. He's always got real good stuff. He's always got new stuff. He is really on top of his game. He's called the Honest Merchant. The Honest Merchant. So if you get a chance, if you're ever at a place where he is, I really do recommend stopping by. Again, congrats to to those folks. If there was anybody else who was elevated as well. Please uh, let us know. Please let us know. We'd love to give you a shout out. And uh, thank you for your hard work. And and we hope that uh, it continues to be uh, exemplary. Uh, And then I'm going to talk a little bit about some tournaments. Um, again, I, I don't think that this is a, a complete list that I've assembled. Uh, it's just the ones that I've heard, so if, if somebody's got ones that I don't have here, that would be excellent to receive. Um, but we have the EBF winning the four-man, I believe again. I, I, I don't feel like that's old news. <laughs> you guys t- uh, typically take that no, one. No, never. Uh, the Wardens won the ten-man. Congrats to you guys. I don't know many Wardens. I like the ones that I do. They're California. I think entirely yeah. California. Uh, for as much as I know, yeah. Um, Hobbit took sword and board. Again, a, a very good fighter. Nice guy. Um, I, 
not surprised that he took Sword and Board. His style is quite good. His technique it's what is he does. Um, and then Steel, and I'm going to butcher this, Igua? Igua. Igua? Igua. Uh, it's probably something that wasn't one of those. Uh, took the Alpha and Omega tournament. An Alpha Omega tournament is a veteran fighter with a new fighter, for those of you who, who might not Usually know. within their first year, it's sometimes up to two, depending on how many interested people you have. Right, right. So... Uh, congratulations to everybody who uh, earned an award at Bifter. Uh, to everybody else, uh, we've heard uh, amazing things that the field was nice and clean, that of course the event was run uh, very tight, and that everything was excellent. So, uh, congratulations to, to Bifter. Uh, battle uh, for the- to Serana. Serana, absolutely. Uh, and then I know Sir House, I believe, was in charge of the field. I believe so, yes. And I don't know what Aether did, but Aether always did something. So, good job, Aether. And again, to, to anybody who runs an event out there, we would love to do any kind of a pro- event promotion th- that uh, you would like. So uh, please just get in touch with me, and we would love to talk about your event and its culture and history as well. Um, Before it's coming up and after it's done, like in both cases. For sure. Um, but without further ado, we're going to talk about some Machiavelli. Again, like we said last time, this could not be more different from Sun Tzu uh, in terms of focus and content. So I, I'm, I'm, I'm really enjoying this, yeah. this, this twist on it. So this first point, this first idea that I, I think he covers a lot in this chapter is the idea of running a group. So in our case, either a, a, a gaming club a realm, or a realm. A house, a yeah. whatever. With peace as the theme. Because he states very, very frankly in there that you should not have professional soldiers in a republic. Now, very few of us roleplay that we're in a republic. Most of us are in monarchies or despotisms of some Generally sort. Generally fascism. A lot of fascism occurs. Um, but this this idea of peace being the theme throughout that um, and, and trying to cultivate a good, healthy community, I think there's a lot of good pointers in this section for that. Uh, for instance... When you're running a realm or a unit or whatever, yes, the idea is war, especially with a realm, because you all want to actively fight each other. And practice is, of course, the central point of everything you're doing. But at the end of the day, I still want to be able to hang out, you know, make podcasts with uh, Malark here, or Mm. get along with people, because when we're getting along off the field, we'll get along on the field better, too. Right, exactly. And then that, and again, that's that's very much what he says in in this section. And there's some some clear ways to achieve this idea of everybody kind of get along, and th- this peace reigning throughout your realm or your gaming club. And the first one he talks about is this idea of the club is not just about fighting, the the or the realm is not just about fighting. That you have alternate professions. And so everybody, he says you should, you should have people who are cobblers and tailors and blacksmiths and farmers. They're not warriors. They've been trained how to fight, but they're not warriors. For us, we're warriors. But the idea is that you have another thing that you can do as well that benefits the realm, whether you're a garb maker or a, a foam smith, a leather worker. Really any kind of non-com activity. Any, like uh, not, not fighting, not on the field activity. Get yourself a guitar and a nice valuable. voice. 
Um, oh man, Roar <clears throat> lives with that stuff at Chaos Wars. He just shows up with no shirt on and a guitar, and he does great for the rest of the event. Toss a coin to your Witcher, my man. <laughs> um, so, so yeah, there, this idea that you want to have that as well, and, and because this enables people to connect in different ways. I know here in Stygia, uh, for the longest time, I don't know if they still do it, but they did like a, a crafter's night, like a sewing night where everybody got together. We're not doing it this year, but we, we've talked about it. It's just, again, time. No one has time. But when, it, when the time allows, people get together, and the whole purpose of the group meeting is to chat and sew and work on projects together. Um, I know foam smiths do this all the time. You'll bring your, your stuff over to somebody else's house, and you work on building weapons. Cece will together. joke about how often she'll come home, and just there will be like three or four people at her house, and her living room is covered in foam. Yep. Yep, community activities. Uh-huh. Yeah. Uh huh. In Stygia, we've taken it even farther. We have a garden that some people participate in every year. Exactly, growing uh, vegetables for the for the realm to enjoy. Yui ran it the last two years. Musquire again because I can never resist talking them up. And uh, I believe Mooring is taking over this coming year. Right on. Yeah, yeah. I, that, that's one of the, that is honestly one of the best ideas I think we've had as a realm. I, I absolutely adore well, it. Well, and then at the end of the year, we always do, like, a, a dinner, usually with a planning meeting. We'll have, like, a whiteboard and talk. Any weird idea people come up with goes up on the whiteboard. Word. And we'll often make a dinner from the vegetables we get out of that garden, too, that people haven't already taken. Nice. Yeah, I, I don't think I was able to make it to this one last this last year because of planning. Yeah, we did a... Uh, Stuffed squash with like sausage and marinara oh, don't, sauce. Don't make me jealous that I wasn't able to make it. That's uh, so cruel. <laughs> uh, point is, other stuff, other realms. You told me Dirty goes to uh, dinners regularly. Yeah, Dur- uh, Dur de Marion, for instance. I know that during the winter, when it's a little bit harder for them to practice, as they lack an indoor space, uh, sometimes it does get very cold in Tennessee. Um, they'll continue up a practice of going to dinners as a realm throughout the winter and and that was one of the coolest things i had experienced because it was a, a place for everybody to get together and you're you're not in that intense uh focused mode you actually can get to know one another and have connections like it's it's really cool and stuff to do in the winter is real important especially if you live somewhere where it's cold so right, Cal, I mean, you, you, you don't care you so cal uh, and, and florida people you don't know what we're talking about necessarily. but it is but. 10 degrees outside <clears throat> right now i am not going out there with a foam stick no but uh, we've done stuff like small competitions during the winter right, or right. fun game days. Uh, best garb competition for like someone who spent less than $20 is one of my favorites. Right. Like, just make whatever weird thing you want. This is the max you can spend. So it's not like one person being like, well, I made my own linen. And the other person being like, I had a sheet. Like, right, um, right. Now, again, these are all just ways of being able to connect and make it not just about the fighting. Again, we're all there to improve as fighters. We're all, well, most of us. I know there's some people who are part of the community who are strictly non-coms, and uh, while I respect and honor you guys and love you being a part of the community... That's not why you're there. This podcast isn't necessarily for you. Um, but, so again, most of us are trying to get better at the actual fighting portion of this, but that's not, that shouldn't be the only focus as to why we go. There's mm-hmm. so many other reasons to participate. And then this next point kind of applies to me as I, I, I'm, I've really enjoyed the fighting aspect. I am, I very much, um, I love the melee fight. 
But as my body ages and as um, I've got some issues on the right side of my body, I find myself doing melee fighting less and less. I find myself on the fighting field less and less. And so... You How used does, some reds recently. That was really nice to see. It was very nice to do. Uh, the PT has been doing wonders. Um, but Take it, care it brought, of your body, folks. It brought me to thinking about the idea of retiring usefully. Uh, and this is this is in the example of if you're still wanting to be a part of the community after you've gone past your fighting years. Yeah. Um, there's absolutely people who, who are tired of it. They don't want to deal with it anymore. And Nothing they're gone. wrong with that. If you're not having fun, then why are you out there? Right. And so, if, and again, not for those people. That's not what we're talking about. But if you want to retire usefully within the community, there's a lot of ways to do that. Um, one of the best ways is to teach new fighters. Uh, um, when I went out to Dirtamarian for a year, there was this fella on the side of the field who came up to me after a fight and gave me one or two pointers. And I, I had no idea who he was. I had no idea where uh, where he'd come from. I just knew he was in garb, and he had given me something that sounded a lot like good advice. <laughs> um, so I, I took it, and it improved my game. And then later I was talking to somebody about it, and they were like, oh, that was that was Sir Ivan. Nice. You know, he's he's a big deal. Like, he's one of the oldest people in the sport. He was one of the founding members of the triad. Like, yeah, they, they, Oh, so he was real old school. Very, very storied fighter. And well, the thing, the way he gave back was by coming out and watching and, and helping new people improve. And I thought that was the coolest thing uh, to do. Uh, uh, Dragoon Dop is another excellent mm-hmm. example of someone who doesn't really fight anymore. But he is unquestionably one of the most valuable Belgrim in the West. Mm-hmm. Which, one, one of the most valuable Belgrim in the sport. Uh, he does so much, Chaos Wars is his, and he puts so much work into taking care of the people around him and making sure we have a community right. to do this thing. Right, and so that's another good uh, example of retiring usefully is is going into that aspect of the sport that most people don't necessarily like to engage in because it detracts from the fighting. But now that you're no longer fighting, the administrative or the service aspects are actually more appealing in, in that regard as well. I, I know a lot of people who come out and what they do at, at a particular event is they watch um, their kids or their... Um, whoever they're there with, and then they will help out with Feast. Yeah. And, and helping out with Feast is the highlight of their week. They really enjoy it. They they get to work with the, the same people that they did last year, and it's, this, and it's this whole connection experience. And so there is a joy to be had in the service aspect of the sport as well. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, there's also the other aspects of, of teaching and of crafting that you can do. Um, if you've been a crafter your entire time in the sport, chances are by the time you get to quote-unquote retiring age, you're going to be quite good at foam smithing or leather crafting or garb making or whatever it is you do. So another useful way to retire is to do that more frequently. To make stuff. Start a small business or even just make stuff to give away to, to fellow realm mates. I definitely, that's probably one of my more valuable parts of the realm right. at this point is I fix the realm weapons and I help new people get new stuff. Right. Because... I mean, I'm not a bad fighter, but I can't play at the top level quite as much as some Belligram go. Sure. But I have other uses. Right, right. And we'll talk about that in this idea of double service a little bit later on in another chapter about the Diletto. But yeah, so this is the idea of retiring usefully, and it ties into our next idea of arming the realm. And arming, and also not just arming the realm, but making sure that the realm is well-trained. Because it's not just about you. It's not just about your unit. It's not just about bringing those people up. The realm helps itself. And in in the biggest way, it is in having good 
opponents to practice against. Because if I go out to practice and nobody else knows what they're doing, and I'm able to just walk through everybody on that field, what have I learned? Well, nothing. Nothing. And the better the fight, the the better it is even if you lose. Yeah. We oh, yeah. had a time at, at practice just yesterday, actually. Mm-hmm. It was me and Grizz, I think. Okay. Versus Tethian and Kaji and Orn. And there was one other, and I don't remember who it on that side, and sorry. Details like, aren't important. It, it, <laughs> it took forever. There was a lot of little positioning. We ended up losing. We did not win that fight. Ooh. But it was such a good fight that who cares? Right. Like, right. And there were several moments where it's like, oh, man, if, if you had taken one more step to the left, it would have gone the other way. Sure. And that level of, of competition is so satisfying and it only happens if everyone is learning and it's very healthy it's very healthy for the realm to have that kind of competition because again if you just have one or two people who are raffle stomping everybody else not only are those one or two people not really learning anything that makes them any better but those the rest of the people aren't able to come up to that level it's not fun for them too it's it's not fun to lose repeatedly because no one's teaching you what to do and we're all looking for recruits we're all looking for people to eventually, we're all going to get older, and so our, our units needed to live on after we've become past our useful fighting age. you got to think about your legacy, man. And so, God, that's so Roman. It fits <laughs> <laughs> the theme of the chapter. Uh, and so, but if you're thinking about this legacy, if you're thinking about who your recruits are going to be, why would somebody want to join your team if their only exposure to you is that you kick the bejesus out of them? Now, if you're teaching them, if you're trying to help them to get better, that's a huge endorsement as to your unit because that says that if they go there, they're going to be able to learn something and not just get the crap kicked out of them every time. Yeah. So arming the realm, training the realm are all very important things. You had brought up earlier uh, the the importance of having good realm weapons, good loner weapons to give out. And good is kind of the most operative word there. Right. Uh, several years back, it was kind of... A on a, a, an ongoing theory that you shouldn't have too nice of realm weapons because then people will never want to get their own gear. That is such a Malthusian way to approach realm leadership. <laughs> uh, and it is not, in my experience, and I've been a realm leader for about four years now, and I was active even before then, it is not true. No. If you have decent weapons... People are more likely to enjoy themselves because their gear isn't actively working against them. Right. They can figure out what they like, and they will make better choices, too, when they buy their own stuff. They're less dangerous as well. An ungainly weapon in the hands of a new person becomes more dangerous than in the hands of a veteran. Yeah. Uh, the only place where I don't really do, like, top of the line is... Well, we don't do poles at all. Right. Just for transportation issues more than anything else. And, and they're very fragile. If you're yeah. going to have poles, they should be yours because just the likelihood of breaking is higher. Uh, and the red that we have is bigger than a lot of reds anymore just because it's very well padded. Right. Because new person is picking it up. Let's be all kinds of safe. Sure. But other than that, we I mean, even that one, we try to make sure it's not a bad red. It's just a little more safety oriented than I might use ones. for my own making. Right, 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 right. Um, but it's all useful stuff. It's mm-hmm. all something that if somebody picks it up, even if I were to go out there and I didn't have weapons for whatever reason, I could pick it up and not have it detract from my ability to fight. Yeah, Tethian was doing a great hunt trail yesterday and he used some of the realm weapons. Like, word. Yeah. Perfect. 
so yeah, this, this is the idea of arming the realm, training the realm, because it leads to not just the realm getting better, but you also getting better as a result. Um, and then the last points about this have to do with the idea of leadership. And one of the points that Thumbs brought up that isn't necessarily in this chapter, but that I thought was a really good point, um, is the idea of clear and open communication. If you're in any sort of leadership role, maintaining an open uh, forum of communication between you and your constituents is the best way to keep misunderstandings from occurring. Yeah. Uh, there, For example, realm leaders have to often vote on the larger rule changes. Right. And a lot of the smaller minutiae ones I won't necessarily consult on. Does this realm get speaking rights? Like, it, it doesn't need the vote. But if there's an important one, I'll at least get people's input. Sure. Even if I don't have time for, like, an official poll, just, like, talk to me. Tell me what you think. Or even just, like, uh, hey, guys, just so you know, I spent this money to buy glue to fix the realm weapons or whatever. So when next time money comes up, people are like, wait, why are we $50 shorter than we were? Or what have you. And then at that point, you're like, oh, I got glue for things. But, yeah. like, that's after the fact. But when you do it right at the time, you're like, this is what I'm doing this for. It, it, it Again, misunderstandings, less likely. Mm-hmm. Which is very good. Um, but also uh, important when you're, when you're dealing with leadership is to make sure that that leadership is rotated often. Um, that you don't have people in power for too terribly long. Because this leads to factionalism. It also leads it, to burnout. Not, not mentioned here, but it's just... It, it can lead to burnout, uh, but it can also lead to, to factionalism, which is to say that people uh, start taking sides. You've got this uh, this core group at the center who, who like runs things, and then you have the outsiders who rally against them, and it can it can break a, a realm apart, in a, like a civil war situation. Stygius had that problem in the past. We have. Uh, and and it ran, we ran into the problem for the reason of you, you can never have one unit that is in ascendancy for too terribly long because it just it's it's like having a monopoly it it's not good for the market other units start taking it personal almost just like getting frustrated yeah yeah so you you have this again this this frustration between the bourgeoisie that controls everything and this proletariat that has to deal with everything um i should and- also say real quick sorry i interrupted you there we're not insulting any of the people who were running stygia back when you and I were the rebellious use being like, you can't tell me what to do. No, there was but also just an element of being 15 and... You can't tell me what to do. <laughs> Thank you for being patient with us. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's real interesting to have a teenager rebel against me because I'm the authority figure. You're older and you have a beard. That makes you pretty <laughs> authoritarian. Uh, like, oh, he's the president. He's like, well, he can't tell me what to do. And I'm like, I, I don't know who you are. I'm sorry. I don't like, even <laughs> want to tell you what to do. Uh, leave me alone. <laughs> Anyways, sorry. Got distracted here. Uh, the, the the point is the wider variety of people who have input into leadership in the realm, the better off the realm is going to be. And a diversity of unit representation is also very important. Mm-hmm. I think the realm has been the most healthy when we've had somebody in each of our three leadership positions from different units, uh, because it, it brings discussion points that you wouldn't normally consider. And it also eliminates a lot of the nepotism that can occur. If like, if, if one unit has all of the spots and they're like, okay, so who are we going to give this contract to feast or contract to, to do the event to? Well, we know that people in our unit, we know that they're reliable. So we're just going to go with that. 
That well, may it, seem innocent and innocuous, but that is bias. That is not letting other people have a chance to do it, who may be perfectly capable of doing so. And even if it isn't nepotism, it removes the image of yes. nepotism, which is sometimes the most important thing. Because you might just legit go with the best person for the job, but someone on the outside, it might seem... Like it's playing favorites yeah. of some sort. Yep. But if you have, a, uh, again, a mixed... Uh, leadership, you can get around that a little bit because it's like, okay, it wasn't just the one person. They may have been from the president's unit, but the VP and the treasurer both signed off on it. So, yeah. And they're not from the same unit. So, it, you know, it's, it's Right now, our different. leadership is uh, GELF, BOF, and DGMA. Love it. In, Love it. In local. Perfect. You've got, you've got two national units and one local unit so that all people are being represented. Everyone's got input. I like that. I like it a lot. That wasn't on purpose. We just it was lucky. But and it's nice realm. when it, it's nice when it works out that way. Yeah, and I and I like I like it when it does because again it avoids this factionalism either either around one person or around one group trying to take too much power and destabilizing the the sense of power for everybody else in the realm. On a smaller level, it's true with units too. When it's like the old guard are running everything and all the. In fact, beware factionalism within your unit as well as within your realm. For We're sure. using realm as an example here because Stygia is an extremely close-knit realm. Right, right. <clears throat> but for some of you, because I know some people are like, I don't have a realm, but I have this. The, the advice applies across pretty much any organization. And even we, as small as we have, are, have experienced factionalism from time to time. So no, no sized organization is immune from it. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's a good thing to try to avoid. Um, but on the unit, uh, on, on the idea of units, <clears throat> the next idea that Machiavelli dis- discusses in this book is on the diletto. I've said this a couple of times now. Uh, and I have forgotten what it means every time. Draft. It basically just means the draft. I read this chapter even, and I'm still <laughs> just like, what's that? What's the diletto? Is that a ice cream? Is that a shoe? <laughs> no, it's the, it's a draft. Um, and so, obviously, for our intents and purposes, we're not able to go out and issue a draft card to anybody. Congratulations, God. you joined the... You were drafted into a unit once. I suppose I was. Yeah, all right, I've been drafted. Um, <laughs> but generally. Yeah, as a general rule, it doesn't particularly happen. Um, so we're talking about selection. Selection for people who are going to be joining your unit. Um, or even just selections of your units for, for 40K. But this one's a bit more specific for... Uh, any for the, the larger community types, I guess it would work for 40k too if you're ta- thinking about taking another player onto your team. The first thing he touches on in here is this idea of city versus countryside. And for Machiavelli, this distinction is made uh, because of monetary resources. He's figuring that people who come from cities are going to have a bit more uh, money. Traditionally, they, we're richer. We're t- traditionally I richer. Say we, even, I do even, not live in a city. Even even now, uh, people who live in cities traditionally are, are, are typically have more money, higher incomes than people who live in very rural areas. And so, this idea of cav versus infantry doesn't necessarily deal with us when it comes to speed on the field. I'm not talking about line fighters versus flankers. Uh, we're talking about cav being people who are well equipped and well suited to any role on the battlefield. And infantry being people who are not necessarily poorly equipped, but not as well equipped as the cav, 
and are just sort of more not fodder. I don't. I, I never want to refer to somebody as fodder necessarily. Light troops. <clears throat> light troops. Light like, troops. They have uh, a different in, point. In a line, you're likely to see people with armor because it's way more useful there. Right. You see a whole lot more glaives. You see bigger shields. It's much bigger of a thing. If I'm flanking, there's a much better chance that I'm using a smaller shield or Florentine. Well, not me, Florentine. A spear is useful for flanking. Actually, a spear is useful for both. Mm-hmm. But. But it was interesting that I did see this in the dichotomy of Durdamarian, which would qualify as a city realm, uh, and Stygia, which is a countryside realm, because in Durdamarian, there is a proliferation of armor, of -hmm. all sorts of different types of armor. They just made it legal to wear dragon scale on their... um, Oh, that's kind of cool. Or dragon mail on on their field. Uh, and so they have a whole lot of different armor. I, I've seen plate out there. I've seen all, all different sh- shapes and sizes of leather, chain. It's just it's a very common occurrence in those eastern and particularly Durdamarian fields. Whereas we rarely here, have two people wearing armor in any yeah, given day. Like one, it happens. One person wearing armor on the field gives like a, a small buff to their team because they're the one person wearing armor. Well, I guess we usually have two because we have Kaji and Roku a lot, and then every once in a while you, me, or Turk will wear armor. But yeah. that's... Oh, and Dicky, I guess. But that's about it. But it's not a hugely common occurrence. It's mostly light fighting that, mm-hmm. we, that we do around here. So I just thought that was interesting. I don't know if that's a hard rule. There's probably going to be somebody writing to me from a city realm and be like, not one of us has armor. Don't How generalize. Uh Another way to look at this is almost, as he said, more money. So instead of city versus country, money versus less money. Right. Right, and, and, and both people are going to be able to bring things to your, to your unit, but somebody who's coming in who has a stable job and has the ability to supply themselves, they're going to be more of a cav. Not saying that infantry aren't useful. You can't just have an army of pure of cavalry. We learned that when we were talking about that one Italian battle. Um, but Yeah, Mongols are about the only people that can pull that off. And even they do it because they have so many, like, the two different diverse types of cavalry. It's not just yeah. the one type. They've got the horse archer, light cav, with the heavy cav that know how to work together. Mm-hmm. It's not just cav. So th- that's, that's an interesting, an interesting uh, parallel that mm-hmm. we were able to draw. But really when you're talking about selection for your unit, you need to be thinking about one thing first. Is your unit a new unit? Or are they an old unit? Because the rules for recruiting are a little bit different. If you have a new unit, a unit that you're just starting, brand spanking new, you want to make sure that you're recruiting a good mix of new fighters and vets. And this is important because the vets are able to bring experience and knowledge, uh, not just of fighting, but also of how other units have done things and things that have failed in the past, to your new experiment. And the new people for their energy and for their uh, their careers. They have their whole careers ahead of them. I have much less fighting in me than an 18-year-old does. Now, that I, I know how to swing a stick a little bit better than an 18-year-old, hopefully, because I've been practicing a little longer. But you can help them learn how to swing that stick, and then they can fight for 12 hours, and you can fight for the three before you need to go take a nap. Precisely. So that's the idea there, is you want to make sure that you're recruiting both if you've got a new unit or a new army starting out. Um, whereas with an old army, it's good to focus on recruiting new people because conceivably you already have veterans who are filling those higher roles. You don't need to be recruited unless you've got somebody who's really good. And of course I'm saying this as a late recruit to the dark angels. I think I was 30 or 29 or 30 by the time they recruited me. So I'm a, I'm a very, and they're an old unit. 
So I, I broke the mold a little bit on that one myself. I don't personally think this one qualifies for Bell quite as well as the new unit information. Right. Because if an experienced fighter wants to join the group and they're good people, then I'm still very much interested. And I don't think Machiavelli um, was talking about turning away experienced people. Yeah. Just that you focus on recruiting newer people. Well, and the thing is, a more experienced person is a little more set in their ways, so if they have to adapt to how your unit works, like if they click really easily, that's one thing. But if they have to change a bit more, it's harder for them, while someone new can kind of figure out their own stuff. At that same time, beware recruiting too new. I don't care if you're a new unit or an old unit. If you're recruiting too new, those people haven't figured out yet what their fighting is, and they don't know if they fit in with you yet. Yeah, they might be just uh, interested because you're the first person to talk to them. And and they hadn't had anybody talk to them before, and so they're just excited to be included. They Help them might, out. Might include them, good. but don't necessarily be like, well, yeah. hello, you've been to three practices. How about you join this unit? And, and I mean, a lot of units get around this by having a probation period, yeah. which is really nice. It's really important. Uh, just to make sure that everybody fits and all the personalities are going to mesh. Yeah, because you might get along with someone and then later find out be like, oh, no. And m- more often than not, if you get into the probation, you're pretty much in. Right. But... It's good to be safe on all sides. Just to know. Well, and I've seen people want to join a unit and then get there and be like, oh, God, like, I would still really like you guys, but it's not for me. This is not what I was looking for. So it's not just protecting the unit, it's protecting the fighter as well. Absolutely. From having to swear on and then later decide that they don't want to be there and all the drama that that ensues. It is a lot less irritating to be like, I don't know if I'm a conscript as opposed to like, I'm turning in my badge. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Um, So yeah, for an old army, again, you're looking for new people, not too new. You still want them to know what they're doing and, and know that they're going to be reliable. And we're going to go into a little bit of that a little bit later on. Um, but, but in either cases, it's good to maintain mixed units. And this is to say that you have veteran fighters who are fighting with and alongside newer fighters. Um, I've seen units who remove their veteran fighters and basically put them in a unit of their own, like an elite unit that uh, fights basically at the core it's a risk. of everything else. And it's a risk. Because your newer people are not going to be bolstered by the confidence that they get by having somebody who knows what they're doing standing next to them. It's, it's just nice. It's nice having that competence there because that competence because becomes infectious. And everybody around you suddenly knows what they're doing because, you, yeah. Part of the reason the Greek phalanx worked so well, they could get a ton of people in there because... I mean, part of it is just the style. You didn't have to be, like, superhuman to pull it off. Right. But... Uh, because of that, you could have the person who's 50 fighting next to the person who's like 17. Absolutely. And the person who's 50 has been doing this for three times as long as the other guy's been alive. Mm-hmm. Uh, and <clears throat> he his weaknesses can be balanced out by the person next to him that's stronger. And the person that's next to him that's stronger can be like, oh my god, I might live through this. I don't necessarily have to like turn and run at the first provocation. Right, right. And so again, that courage uh, is able to to keep the whole unit together Mm -hmm. rather than just having a completely green unit that comes up against something they can't handle. Unfortunately with the phalanx, if you had to turn left, you were really screwed. (laughs) That was was a rough maneuver. Not, not important for this part (laughs) as much. I just, I've been listening to a lot of, history podcast lately. That's good prep for what we're doing here. The other thing you want to look for, he says, and I also think this is really important for for Belagarth, is the idea of everyone you bring in should be able to do double service. So what he means by that is 
obviously the first service is fighting. Are they a good fighter? Because if uh, different units have different recruiting tactics, mm-hmm. but very competitive units are not going to necessarily look at somebody who has not accomplished much as a fighter. But it is just as important that that person come in with another skill. Like we were just talking about uh, with the retiring usefully back in the, the, the last section, this double service could be anything. He, he talks about the need to have cobblers and blacksmiths and uh, garment makers and all that sort of thing in the army so that you, you, you just have it on hand. But for us, it's just as useful to have foamsmiths, leathersmiths, garb makers, lore masters, party planners. Uh, party planners, the people who are really good at organizing other people. It shouldn't just be a good fighter. That's not the only thing you're looking for. They should bring something else to the unit as well. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think of it as, are they a good Belgrim? Right. And a good Belgrim to me tends to be people who bring significantly to the community. And more often than not, that's really valuable to have people who can do multiple things as opposed to one person who does one thing really well. Right. Right, because uh, then what if they're in a position where that one thing isn't necessary? Just the look of fear on their face is kind of funny, but what it gets do? real old real fast. Yeah, absolutely. So so double service is really good to look for. Are they skilled or willing to be skilled in other ways? They may not need to be the best garb maker in the world, but if they're eager to learn from one of your other garb makers, they could very well fill that, that role. Well, and it, and it doesn't have to just be something game-related. You were talking about, we both did Montana Conservation Corps. Right. Uh, and if I know someone did MCC, I know that they are used to working in a small group, and mm-hmm. they are used to making sure camp is set up, yep. and yep. the stuff gets done, which is just so valuable. Oh, yeah. Yeah, the, the the camp master is is can be one of the most valuable, especially if the larger your camp is, the more important it is to have somebody who knows what they're doing when setting up camp. Heck, just knowing how to properly write, light a fire in wet conditions uh, can be huge. <laughs> uh, me and Sethra were at Western Wars once, and they, it had been raining, because, you know, it's the Oregon forest, of course it's been raining. Uh, and... No one could get the fire lit, and Seth and I were watching and getting more and more frustrated until finally we're like, move! <laughs> and anytime someone like would try to come up with help, we were like, if you're not from Montana, you're not allowed near the fire until it's lit. <laughs> uh, but the fire, the fire got, got lit. lit. The fire got lit. And that's what we're talking about. So having a, having a good fire starter, also a good person to have on your team. Um, so double service. Uh, another important thing to look for, but just as important as this double service, uh, Machiavelli says, is that your new recruit have a sense of honesty and shame. And this isn't to say that they beat themselves up over every little mistake. We're not we're not saying that every new recruit needs to be a complete emotional masochist. No, that works against you. But a sense of honesty and shame means that you're willing to be honest and you're willing to accept responsibility for your failures. Um, people who are overly prideful, people who are, are liars, uh, people who are unwilling to see their faults are also unwilling to grow as people. They are not healthy people to have in your unit. Honestly, it doesn't matter how good of a fighter they are. If they don't have a sense of honesty and shame, if they don't have a, a basic idea of, of justice, I, I'm not sure they're worth having in a unit. It doesn't matter how good you play wacky bats if you're a dick. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and, and to put it real straightforward. Because, you know, there's, there's a good deal of our time that's spent on the field, but there's also a good deal of time spent off the field. And not only that, a dishonest, exceptionally arrogant person is going to earn a bad reputation for your organization. 
Uh, so they're just they're they're more trouble than they're worth. Well, and I'm gonna say be careful doing it jokingly, even because I know a few people who uh, kind of role play the 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 egotist Word. for the character for whatever. And there's ways you can do it. Sure, but be really careful and make sure that the people who don't necessarily know you know that that's not like actually you. Yes. Yeah. Uh, it helps to adopt a silly voice of some sort, uh, particularly for monsters. But, and so, the, yeah, the, this is important, uh, to have this sense of honesty and shame so you know that they're going to be a good, hard worker that you can depend on and that you know that they're not going to try to steal from you or, or anything along those lines. It, it's interesting, there was a, a couple of things in the campaign that we're going to talk about where this sense of honesty and shame would have been real useful um, for those who were, ended up losing whatever. Roman history in a nutshell. <laughs> Um, and then uh, lastly, for this idea of this Diletto is the idea of promoting within the organization. Um, let's say you do have a vet that comes in from another unit and they're highly accomplished, uh, very decorated fighter. One of the worst things you can do is put them into a leadership position right out of the get go, because there's a lot of people who have already been members of that organization who know its culture and know its its ins and outs, its strengths and weaknesses so much better that are not only going to resent uh, somebody being promoted over their heads, but they're also far better candidates for the position. I've been listening to a lot of Rome podcasts because turns out our campaign is Roman. Mm -hmm. uh, and one place where they would have trouble is a new general would come in and take over a war for whatever reason, generally because their generals were their politicians. Right, but right. not important for this part. And the war would take longer. Because the general would have to get up to speed, and the soldiers would have to get up to the speed of the general's tactics. Right. Because <clears throat> it would be all different. They would have come from a different place who, who knew them or whatever. And you don't have that earned trust yet. The earned trust is huge. Uh, just Because if I've fought side by side with somebody for five years, and then that person is promoted over me, but I know that they're competent because I've seen them fight for five years, and they've had my back for five years, I'll follow that person. I'll follow them to the... To the edge of the field, no doubt. Uh, <laughs> but some carpetbagger comes in from, from someplace else and suddenly assumes that they have the right to lead me. Uh, yeah, there's a little bit of resentment there. It's like when you're at an event and someone like in your group starts shouting orders to the people around them. Yeah. And, I mean, a lot of times they tend to be pretty new people, so, yeah. But uh, I'm just like, look, dude, I don't know you. Why would I listen to your push? Like, that's not helpful. It can be. I, I, I get people to do what I want them to do when I'm out there, but I'm typically leading from the front, and I'm just like, I'm I'm hollering what I'm doing, and I'm going whether you guys want to or not. And That's true. In this case, how you express it is yeah, very important. Very too, important. Because, again, people don't like being necessarily told what to do. They like being shown the right way. They so, love being shown what to do. Uh, but, but not so much told. So, again, promoting within the organization, making sure you have somebody who understands your unit culture, who, who understands the way that the things are done, it, it, it's a very important thing to do. So the last thing we're going to talk about before we get to our, our battle section, which we're both excited for, is the idea of keeping an ordinance. He talks about this several times, and I thought that this uh, applied really heavily to, to Warhammer 40k or to other uh, similar tabletop games and or RTSs. Um, and that's the idea of... For me, it's multiple armies with different play styles. Like I've said before, I've got like seven armies, and they all play totally different. You'll notice on our new picture for the podcast, I am now holding a Death Guard book instead of a 
uh, Adeptus Mechanicus book because I'm currently going through a Death Guard phase and I am enjoying it. Um, oh, you're already out of your Orc phase? Yeah, I had an Orc phase too. You'll see an Orc book on there at some point, I'm sure. Um, but but it's I, I like having that diversity. And not only does that diversity make it so that I never get bored with gaming because you know, I'll be the other and like, ah, you know, I played several AdMac games and I found a nice technique that works and I, I kind of just know what I'm going to do now. I'll switch it up. I'll do some demons. I'll do some orcs. And they have a totally different play style. Keeps you from getting in a rut. Keeps me from getting interrupted, keeps me from getting bored, and also teaches me the strengths and weaknesses of all those different types of armies. So that when I'm facing one, I know how to fight it. And in, in this same idea, the idea of practicing often and against varied opponents. He talks about this in the book, and I think it's a great idea. We have a, a club here, uh, the Black Lotus Sector, that I am really thankful for. Because each of us has at least two armies, if not more, like I've got seven, um, I think Kaji's got like four or five now. Uh, uh, Turkey's got technically two because he's got his space. He could play regular space Marines as well. Um, and so all of us have some diversity, mm-hmm. which means that we all have diversity to go against. Like I've gotten used to going against Kaji when he's using his Imperial Guard. That's a very normal thing for him to do. But every once in a while. But he's been on a Tyranids kick recently. Oh, I can and see that. Tyranids that are me. so different. And so uh, seeing what his mind does with Tyranids tactics really helps. Because it's not just the same thing every time. It's not just all of us play Space Marines. We're all just fighting Space Marines all the time. So we've gotten good at Space Marines fighting Space Marines. And then you go up against Eldar and you're like, what are these spindly things that I can't catch? And, and so uh, it, it really helps. It really helps develop your ordinance. And, and in that same idea, try mixed tactics, try new things. Um, I was experimenting after our, our uh, episode on attacking with fire. Yeah. I started experimenting with a lot of new stuff in my death guard list. And I came up with some really brutal combos that I am just tickled by. It, it was a good thing to do. And so just that, that thinking about it and doing a little bit more research led me to experimentation, which led me to a new, really good idea. Well, and to kind of tie this into Bell, and not too much because we've already talked a lot about Bell and I want you to have 40k time but one thing that I teach a lot to new people is if you want to learn how to beat something use something Yeah. if I, I could not beat spears so I picked up a spear and now it's like my dominant style right, but right. how to beat spears got a lot easier when I saw how people were beating me Right, because you could you could kind of take note and be like, oh, that's the timing of when they run up my spear. They wait for me to have my f- weight planted yeah. on my forward foot. It's a, it's a little more expensive with 40K, but the idea still qualifies of, oh, man, I just can't take on these swarm armies. Try a swarm army and be like, oh, wow, they just broke me with, I don't know what beats swarm armies, uh, uh, tanks. With Tyranids? Oh, they just broke me with, uh, yeah, that, that would be like Astro Militarum would be good tanks. Yeah. Okay, I need some tanks in this other army. Or... Right. No, and, and and so yeah, it does help. And even if you can't afford to get all of the armies yourself, again, the nice thing about our club being like it is is if somebody needs wants to try Eldar, borrow some Eldar. You somebody have seven to... armies you can share. Yep. I, I've told people that. I've told you that. I'm like, please play me. I'll let you use whatever you want. I will take the drags. Um, <laughs> I wouldn't even know. I would teach you. I would teach I know. you what is good. I'll play kill team. I, I just I already don't have enough time in the day. I, I got you. I got you. We'll get you though. We're, we're going to get together for readings. We're going to get together for kill team. 
maybe a book club. No, we're already doing book club. That's what this is. Please um, pay us for this podcast so I have time to do these things. <laughs> we should be setting up a Patreon before too terribly long. And uh, and ad time. That's another thing. If you if you have uh, ads for your garb or your weapon or your armor company that you would like to get a little bit more notoriety, we would love to work out a deal that's mutually beneficial for both of us. I think that's it for, for what my analysis of the chapter. Do you have anything? Yeah, no, I think that's about right. All right, all right. So we thought that considering that the um, the Romans are kind of the central theme of Machiavelli, he obsesses about them a whole lot, that it might be appropriate to now speak about some Romans. Specifically, kind of two Romans, uh, 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 Caesar, mm-hmm. most famous Roman of all time, yeah, 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 and him. his enemy, who I actually kind of like a little better, Pompey. He was a lot more liked at the time too. He was a, a very popular kind of fella. He had one of the biggest triumphs of all time. Uh, we'll specifically be talking about Caesar and Pompey's war, after which Caesar becomes emperor of Rome mm-hmm. uh, for a year. For a year, it didn't <clears throat> not for long, but. Uh, it is interesting when we're talking about these because we are talking about possibly the greatest generation of one of the greatest empires of all time. Yeah, absolutely. So these people, especially Caesar, has been almost canonized idolized. by some people. Yeah, idolized is a yeah. better word for it, yeah. And I, I, the thing I wanted to point out before this, before we talk about all the really cool, interesting politics and fighting and stuff, is to really understand the scale of stuff we are talking about. Right is kind of the death toll. Yes. These people were monsters, if you actually, like, look at it. Caesar, just in his Gallic invasions, two million people were killed or enslaved. Mm-hmm. That's double the population of our state. Yeah. That is two-thirds of the town of Los Angeles. Mm-hmm. And when I think of Caesar, I think of this phrase, to be a great man, you automatically can't be a good man. And it seems to be the case in a lot of, in a there, lot of and cases. And there's some debate on the phrase, but it certainly seems to qualify for Caesar. If we look at the things he did, great, amazing things. He destroyed multiple civilizations, including his own. <laughs> to yeah, do including it. his own. But at the other time that I should mention this is, Caesar is not special or unique that he did this. Like, no. yeah. all the things that happened, the Roman invasions of Gaul, the collapse of the Republic... Everything was going to happen. It wasn't a one-man job. Uh, I've actually, to study this, I listened to Hardcore History. It's a Dan Carlin podcast. And he covers over five parts, like the hundred years before the fall of Republic, to just, just to talk about this kind of stuff. There were so many trends and forces, and particularly with a culture like the Romans, where glory and uh, your legacy is so important. Right. Like, obsessively important. It was inevitable this was going to happen. Caesar's just the guy that did this. Right. So as much as I'm going to just be like, oh, Caesar, you're terrible. He's also a rock star. He's one of the most amazing humans to ever live. And probably the most Roman Roman to every Roman. He is the ultimate of Romans. Yeah. And in part of that, it's also kind of hard to figure out sometimes why he's doing stuff. Did he care about the people or did he care about himself or did both apply at the same time? And the answer is... Kind of all three. And it happened 2,000 years ago, so it's not like we can ask the man himself. There is so much guesswork. 
It is fascinating, though, because I love ancient cultures. I Give me 2,000 years ago, over 200 years ago, any day. <laughs> uh, but the Romans are the first time that we really have so much of it. We know about the Greeks. We have a lot of their stuff. With Especially with this era of Romans, we have the letters they were writing to their friends being like, did you hear what I said to Caesar the other day? Like, right, uh, this right. is what I was going behind it. So it's such a fascinating period of history. Well, we do have a lot more coverage of it than we do of other ones where writing wasn't nearly as prolific. Yeah. That's for we, sure. We have Cicero's writings. We literally don't have any contemporary sources for Alexander the Great. Right. And that's a difference of only a couple hundred years. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Yeah, so I, the, the Romans are a very exciting time because we can study uh, what, what occurred in detail, uh, which is one of the reasons they've been a, a central point of study, I think, uh, for a lot of the world's history. Uh, but this particular period of Roman history that we're going to be talking about occurs between 49 and 45 BCE. Um, and the forces involved would have been Julius Caesar and the Populares, which would have been like the, the populist forces and legions that supported him. And then Pompey, the Senate, and the Optimates, who would have been considered a more conservative, uh, traditional-based uh, folks who wanted the power to remain in the Senate. Uh, and Pompey and Caesar were the two most powerful men in Rome. Oh, no doubt. No uh, doubt. And, and Pompey at the time, before Caesar's ascension, uh, was definitely the most powerful man in Rome. He was re- uh, regarded to be the greatest military leader of the time by his peers, um, these two were actually part of something called the Triumvirate. Yep, the first Triumvirate. Yep. Those two and a man named Crassus. Crassus. Yes, sir. Uh, and it's Latin name, so it's sometimes you can hear different versions, and mm-hmm. they're all kind of true because it's Latin. We have no idea um, how it was pronounced. And these three were the three most powerful men in Rome. They had created an organization. Caesar actually did it to raise power because Crassus and Pompey were both way more powerful than him. Sure. Uh, were... Basically, all three of them were working towards each other's goals. While secretly just working toward their own goals. Mm -hmm. Uh, And they were very close. Pompey was actually married to Caesar's daughter, Mm -hmm. which is super creepy because he was older than Caesar was. Yeah, but it was, again, it was a practice at the time. We're not here to judge the past. We're just here to study it. I'm a little here to judge the past, but I also (laughs) accept that it's... I am here to study. (laughs) Um, But, and it's just fascinating. So these two were really close, and particularly after Crassus died... Suddenly, the power balance of the triumvirate of if one person got too powerful, the other two could like calm them down a little bit was really off kilter. Because yeah, then it was just uh, Caesar versus Pompey, and and Caesar was becoming more and more popular. He had become a, a champion of the people uh, by being in favor of some reforms. Uh, whether or not he was sincere about it is irrelevant. What is uh, pertinent to our conversation is the fact that people bought it and. Uh, he was very, very well regarded by the public. So much so that he was able to get away with way more than he should have in his position. Oh, the Gallic invasions were so illegal. And, were. and then even his uh, second period of of ruling, when he was put into his, his like uh, um, uh, consul position... Um, the, You're yeah. not supposed to be able to do that. No. Uh, Especially a, a, to avoid lawsuits. A, really, a great way that I heard described it was... Pompey couldn't stand to have anyone as great as him, and Caesar couldn't let anybody be greater than him. And it was, so it was inevitable. Clash of egos. Um, so prior to this, like we were talking about, Caesar had served eight years in the Gallic Wars. He was, he was fresh out of these campaigns and had a, a diehard, well-trained veteran force behind him who were all very, very much loyal to him. Um, Caesar was probably the, the thing he is best at is he is 
so charismatic. People loved him. Yep. Even when he was a dick, which was all the time. Which was all the time. He slept with everyone's wife. Yeah. Again, that, not that uncommon. In Including Crassus's. But yeah, yeah, that's true. Which would have been his in-laws, in a way. Um, <laughs> Don't think too closely about <laughs> it's a it. Lot of, a lot of twists in that story. But yeah, so Caesar didn't come into this fresh. and But Pompey wasn't necessarily willing to allow this this flex. And certainly the Senate wasn't allowing to win the, will this flex. And so push came to shove, and Caesar refused to give up power of his army. The, the Senate was finally was like, we, we, we've had enough of this, you're avoiding these lawsuits, um, it's time for you to step down and become just a normal citizen. Well, and also there was this rule that you couldn't cross a certain line. The, the Rubicon. The Rubicon yeah. uh, it's a ripper. Uh, with your army. There was no army allowed, in theory, it got broken a lot, uh, within a certain distance of Rome. And it was just to keep the city from becoming occupied, which is exactly what Caesar did. Mm-hmm. Um, and with the very famous line, very famous moment, and it's got to be interesting because this moment changes history forever, mm-hmm. where he steps across the Rubicon with his army, and in theory, his quote is, so the die, uh, let the die be cast or something like that. Yeah, no, it, 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 he's he's credited with saying something pretty bamfy, which, of course, I imagine he sat there for like a week beforehand being like, what will be the words I will use when I cross the Rubicon because I need this to be epic. Well, and what's actually fun with that is we have his writings. Right. And it, it wasn't just like, they, they are the most biased mm-hmm. war stories. Because it's him not just being like, this. here's what I did and here's why, but it was propaganda for back home to explain here's what I did and here's why. His Yeah, his invasion of Gaul, when he's writing about it, was basically in order to get people on his side uh, for disobeying orders the whole time he was in Gaul and saying, look, no, look, it was justified. Look how brutal they were. They they sacrificed old women in trees. They hung up babies. Oh, sure, you're right. I did finish up this war, but there's another war oh, I sure. have to do now. You got a war all the time. <sighs> so, yeah, he was, he was a brilliant propagandist, very good at getting people onto his side, um, but it, it, he ran out of luck, ran out of luck. And so the Senate asked him to relinquish his army and instead, he uses it to cross the Rubicon and occupy Rome herself. So, at this point, Pompey and all of the other optimates, or uh, op- uh, optimates, I'm sure, I'm sure I'm butchering that, um, left. And they, they went across the sea over into the Greek areas where they had a lot of support in order to build up an army to oppose Caesar. Well, and Pompey had an army too, but it was in Spain, so it wasn't nearby. Right. So going away to Greece was a lot safer than trying to hold Rome. Now, that army in Spain started to, started to make a lot of noise. And so before Caesar was able to go after Pompey, he actually had to go over to Spain and subdue it um, before he could focus his attentions because he didn't want to move east against a, a foe who he knew was going to be tough. Pompey, again, was an accomplished military commander, so he didn't think he was going to be a pushover by any means. Um, and so he didn't want to have wolves at his back while he was doing this. So yeah, went, if Pompey had been able to hit him from two sides, uh, that would have been rough. it would have been over. It would have been rough. So he hit Spain and then redirects over toward uh, Greece, technically Albania now, but it was a part of the Greek uh, states at the time. What qualified as Greece was pretty broad 2,000 years ago. Yes. Yes, uh, Greece was, was rather large. Um, and so this, would, this one occurred at uh, Dyrrhachium, or Dyrrhachium um, in 48 uh, BCE. And the outcome of this one was that Caesar was defeated. Uh, the war could have been over right here because uh, Caesar tried to do a siege 
uh, but the defenders sh- uh, were able to be shown a weakness in the role. Do you remember I was saying that you need to have people with a sense of honesty and shame? Well, a couple of Caesar's troops did not, and they went over to the other side and showed a weakness in the siege, which, of course, Pompey took advantage of, broke out, caused a a rout in Caesar's forces, and a very panicked withdrawal. Uh, If Pompey would have pursued right here, it would have been probably the end of the conflict. Caesar himself said that if Pompey had pursued, he would have won. But Pompey feared a trap. It wasn't unlike Caesar to have a quote-unquote chaotic retreat and then to have a very well-organized ambush waiting on well, the other side of things. You, you kind of get the sense with this that Pompey didn't so much want this fight. Not so much. I don't, yeah, I don't think his heart was in Just it. Just in the war, like when they, when they assigned him, you need to take out Caesar, his response was, if there is no better way. Like, this was his father-in-law who's younger than him but again we served with he's got he's got history with yeah and Pompey wasn't so much a I mean he was a crazy Roman egotist but he he wanted praise more than he wanted to rule right and so, he and, and honestly it had been a long time since Pompey had led a campaign too he'd yeah. been a, a career politician for a minute at this point although he did take out Mithridates who is the most fascinating man in Roman history we'll probably get to that at some oh, point I love him um, not like, distracted today but, um, so again, Caesar loses here, and he falls back, and he learns from his mistake. And four days later, he comes after Pompey again at Pharsalus. Uh, and at this one, Pompey is actually defeated instead. Um, and because part of, part of the reason was Pompey didn't really want this. Like we were talking about, it very much appears that Pompey did not want this fight. And the Senate forced him into this fight four days later, saying that they needed to have some sort of decisive resolution to the conflict. Well, in his speech before this, he was pretty much just like, I'm doing this because you told me to. It's not my fault if it goes wrong. Right. <laughs> and so Terrible paraphrasing there. Uh, Caesar does his, his typical thing where he comes up, turtled up, uh, ready to go. Uh, Pompey smashes one of his sides, but there is a line there that Caesar put at the last minute, so you have a veteran counterattack that pushes back. Um, and very quickly, after a, a line starts to collapse, Pompey loses the will to fight altogether. He goes into his tent, he strips off his general's clothes, puts on commoner's clothes, and takes to the road. Well, and what's fun here is Caesar's army had so much will to fight because they felt really embarrassed after they ran. Embarrassed? And it was kind of a do-or-die situation and, for them. And so they were like, punish us, Caesar. And Caesar, being so good at all this, is like, no, I'm not going to punish you, but you can re-earn your right to, like, be my army. Uh, and one of the things he, at least according to legend, had them do is when they marched off to this battle they tore down their camp defenses at the same time. Hmm. So basically they were saying to themselves and to the other army who could see them doing this, because Roman camp defenses were nothing to sneeze at. No, they're like fully fortified siege camps. In the space of a day, it's terrifying. Um, They knew that it was do or die. That they were going to sleep in the enemy camp, or they were not going to sleep. And part of the reason for this is this move when they went from Spain to Greece was intercepted by a blockade. And so half of Caesar's army is still trying to find a place to get into shore. And so the half that he has is outnumbered. And uh, again, they're very much in a do or die situation. Just back imagine is how terrifying that would be. Like just watching someone like set their bed on fire and be like, I'm asleep in your bed tonight. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so Pompey loses the will to fight. He flees the field. 
uh, flees over to Egypt, where he is then assassinated. Caesar actually was upset about this. Oh, he, he was he, so He did mad. not want Pompey to be assassinated. He wanted the public spectacle of being able to pardon magnanimously his enemy. And he also might have just honestly wanted Pompey. I mean, he was a good again, commander. There was a good commander, and he had this connection. Both of them always seemed kind of sad that this had to happen, but because they're Romans, it had to happen. Hear the disgust in my voice. Um, <laughs> <laughs> it was destiny. Um, <sighs> but yeah, so and, and yeah, so Caesar was upset about this. He he, uh, yeah, he didn't care for it. Definitely told Ptolemy how much he didn't care for it. Um, but then Which they moved terribly for Ptolemy. <laughs> so there, there was a lot of battles here that we're not necessarily going to cover because this fighting was was all over Italy, Illyria, Greece, Egypt, Africa, and Hispania. So it was uh, very much all around the Mediterranean area. Um, but these two fights, are these really four, the fight, four, these fights, four fights. Sorry, fights. we got two more to go over real quick. Um, so uh, two years later, in forty six, um, down in Africa, Scipio is finally defeated outside, outside of Thapsus. And so... There's so many Scipios involved with Africa. Well, they had tried to bring him to fight for so long, but they, 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 there was constant remaneuvering and shifting, and, they, and Caesar could not quite bring Scipio to battle. But once he uh, started the siege at Thapsus, or Thapsus, um, the forces in Africa really had no choice, they, mm-hmm. because Thapsus was a very important uh, port, very important uh, city, for, for trade, for getting things in and out of Egypt, so the, the uh, or out of Africa. So this was um, when we talked about in the art of war, attacking something that your enemy cannot lose as a, as a way. Caesar was very good at that, being like, "All right, you're going to dodge around and not come to battle. I'm going to go right after the thing that you care about." Oh, there you go. Now you're now, oh, <laughs> now we're coming to blows. Well, you want to play now? So uh, they used elephants in this one. Caesar won against. Elephants, which I think is awesome. Roman armies were weirdly good against elephants. It was the discipline. Elephants were very good at breaking formations that were were undisciplined and easily given to fear. Uh, Roman legionaries were bred not to really feel that fear. They were very much, we're going to stand here and die, if anything else. And so when the elephants first attacked, uh, they hit them with arrows. And so the elephants got panicked, turned around, and mauled <laughs> their the own troops. The next one that came went up against the cavalry. Uh, the cavalry outmaneuvered these elephants, got in behind the lines, and hit the enemy camp. One thing, just thinking of cavalry, it's interesting to note that at this point, Romans didn't really have their own cavalry. It was all outsourced. Yep. Yeah, mercenary they, companies. Or auxiliary, excuse Romans me. Romans used heavy infantry, and then if they needed anything else, which they always did, because it's hard to do an army on just heavy infantry, they asked their allies to do it. Uh, And Caesar actually had a pretty good relationship with one of the German tribes that he had originally beaten, and then went and beat other Gauls instead, and allied with that German tribe, so he could bring in some of the most terrifying cavalry in the world at that time. Some of the best at maneuver. And I don't know if this tribe was in this specific fight, but Mm -hmm. it's just, I I was thinking of it, because... That's a, it's a good point to bring up is that, that he had access to everything all over the Roman Empire, not just uh, not just the Roman troops themselves, but any auxiliary units that they would have picked up from outlying regions. Yeah. So we, we don't know which cav exactly was here, but we do know that they were good and that they were able to outmaneuver and get behind the lines. Uh, after this one, of course, there's a string of suicides because that's a typical thing for Roman commanders after they're uh, been defeated. Um, Their honor was so important that they just couldn't 
handled as a culture. Yep. So Scipio and and his ilk um, went out that way as well. Um, and so the final fight took place in uh, Munda over in Spain. So we've gone full circle. The first place that Caesar went after he took Rome was to Spain. Now he's gone all the way around the Mediterranean, come back to Spain, where the sons of Pompey have been making noise. And they have kicked out a local proconsul. They have said they're not going to accept Caesar's rule, and Caesar needs to go and deal with this. These are the last of the optimates, though. This is the last of this particular faction that still exists. Is he officially an emperor at this point? He or? hasn't officially... I don't think he's officially declared himself emperor of the world, <laughs> or whatever it was. Um, because at this point, he still politically cannot go back to Rome. Oh, yeah. Um, and, and, and be there for any length of time. Um, and so... Caesar surprises them though, because this is a long trek from like the uh, from like the Italian peninsula over to the Iberian peninsula. But he makes it in a very 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 short amount of time, and he's able to and that that, that hits their morale pretty hard because he's suddenly sieging a bunch of things that they need. Um, some of their auxiliary units are talking about defecting and just going over to the other side. And so once again, Caesar is able to, because they're, they're squirreling around the countryside for the longest time. They don't want to come to blows with Caesar. He's got a <laughs> reputation at this point. But he finally brings them to bear when he, again, sieges something important. And they come, and it is just an absolute... Uh, it, it's the same story that we've been telling this whole time. Caesar turtles up. He waits for his enemy to hit. He absorbs that hit, and then he counter-hits hard. And he's got the materials to do so at his disposal. It's straight up how he won Gaul. Yep. Every fight. And and he brings, again, that was, those eight years were right before this conflict. So the, the playbook he had from Gaul, he brings immediately to this conflict. And it works pretty well. Except for that very opening battle at Dyrrhachium, where really it was um, defectors who were able to, to yeah. point the... Which is so weird, because Caesar was so good at getting defectors. Every now and then. Well, again, you have them, they're... they're basically marooned they've just arrived in greece they have no way back to rome at that point they have no supplies or anything so and they're up against the great pompey they're up against the great pompey yeah so so if there was a time for it that was the time so um we wanted to focus on this because so many times uh, machiavelli in this chapter had talked about the importance of not having leaders be military commanders as their primary profession because people who are simply warriors want to always pursue war and will always be after the next conflict. And I think that, that the ambitions of Caesar and Pompey really drive home this point. Yeah, it's absolutely what set Rome over the edge. Like, again, it probably still would have happened, but these two were the ones that were just so into it that... And previously it had been a republic. And so this book, that, that this art of war that Machiavelli's writing is is to somebody who leads a republic. And so for, I, I'm imagining from his mind, this moment was the moment at which that republic died because these rules of, of not having violent men in power were broken. Well, and, and this happened a lot. I mean, even yeah. just a generation before this, Sulla had taken over Rome. Very briefly, to yep, yep kill 5,000 or so people because they annoyed him and set some new rules because he thought the Republic was broken and Sulla gave up power because Romans are weird. But, like, uh, the, the fact that the politicians were generals and they were becoming politicians to become generals right. really is a problem. And it, it led to exactly the problem. And, and then after this, we have uh, Caesar declaring himself a dictator in, uh, forever. 
he is dictator for life, and that is effectively the death of the Roman Republic and the beginning of the Roman Empire. The world was literally never the same. We're still feeling the repercussions of these today. actions. Yeah. So this advice that Machiavelli gives for, for selecting the right people for the right jobs, uh, I don't think we could have had a better example of uh, not really <laughs> of that, especially from Rome. I thought it was a, I thought that was perfect. Oh yeah, we're probably gonna. There's gonna be a lot of like Rome, Greece, Italy. Oh, it just goes with the theme. We yeah. To. Um, but we, we thank you guys for reading along. I hope you guys enjoyed the chapter as well. And if you're reading along at home and we, we missed a key point, uh, please please write to us and, and let us know. Uh, this is the part of the show where we do the plugs. So we have a, an Instagram account. Thumbs? Uh, what, what is that called? It's the uh, Art of War Gaming Podcast. Uh, there's no the. It's Art of War Gaming Podcast. There we go. Uh, what about our email? Art of War Gaming Podcast at gmail.com. We also have a Facebook page, The Art of Wargaming. That one does have a the? Yes. That one, <laughs> that one does have that a one has, that one does I mean, if you type, type in Art of Wargaming, it'll still, you'll be good. You'll find us. And then uh, the, the, our, our other friends over here on the Earworm Network, we have General Nerdery. General Nerdery is me well. and my buddy Tyler. And then we also have Fried Squirms, which is a horror movie podcast with Tyler and Danny. Outstanding. Uh, so, yeah. Tune in next week when we talk about Machiavelli Part 2. But uh, for tonight, this is Malark and Thumbs signing off.